Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Well, good morning. And the top news of the day is that Joe Biden announced his reelection campaign yesterday. Um, Really, though, I don't think this was Joe Biden as much as his handlers announced for him that uh, they are simply going to stay in office. And uh, so Gavin Newsom, the governor out of California that was widely viewed to be the possible challenger, also tweeted yesterday that he's out. So uh, it really doesn't look like there will be any competition on the Democrat side other than uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., who uh, I think should definitely challenge the fact that Democrats and the DNC don't want any primary debates. Can you imagine Joe Biden and Robert Kennedy Jr. on stage together? I would love to see that. Uh, But on the Republican side, um, Donald Trump is also suggesting that he does not want to participate in any of the debates uh, in the Republican primary, which is an open primary. And of course, everyone is expecting Governor Ron DeSantis out of Florida to be the main challenger. And our good friend, the esteemed congressman from Texas, Chip Roy, has already endorsed uh, Governor DeSantis, along with um, our good friend and and one of my other favorite people in Congress, uh, Representative Thomas Massey from the great state of Kentucky. So uh, Chip Roy joins us this morning. And um, good morning, Chip. So I want to get to a few other things in Congress. But first, um, we've had a few people on this program talking about their endorsement um, of President Trump's re-election campaign, but you have um, already endorsed Governor DeSantis. So um, I wanted to talk about that and why you think that he is the best uh, challenger for the 2024 GOP nomination. Well, good morning, Jenna. Great to be on. And uh, look, I've known Governor DeSantis for about a decade. Uh, when I was Senator Cruz's chief of staff, he was a freshman member of Congress. We've got a lot of uh, overlapping friends, uh, people that work for him right now, and then I've got to know him pretty well as governor. And look, he's been down there doing a great job fighting for this country, fighting for Florida. Um, obviously, he's a veteran. He, um, he's got a great family. He won by a million and a half votes. Uh, he won uh, 62% of Hispanic voters, 50% of female voters, uh, single female voters. Um, and uh, he's done a great job growing the economy in Florida. He's taken on the corporate establishment, took on Disney head-on. Uh, without fear, didn't really worry about it, what everybody said, uh, took on the education establishment. Um, and look, he just he just signed a really strong abortion bill in Florida, doing so in the face of, you know, some uh, donor pushback, some of the sort of, you know, media news and whatnot. He's fearless, but he's young. He can serve eight years. Uh, he's someone that I think can carry us forward. And uh, look, I supported President Trump even after I was a Ted Cruz guy, you know, in 2016. Primaries exist for a reason. Nobody should be afraid of a primary. Uh, Nobody should be afraid of having a little tough uh, debate. And uh, we'll see what happens here. But uh, uh, Governor DeSantis is fearless, and I'm happy to stand alongside of him and right behind him. Yeah, and that's that's such a great view. And you're absolutely right that primaries are open, and we have that for a reason. And there's a lot of speculation, um, Congressman, that – 
that President Trump, as much as people have championed him in the past and supported him in the past, um, obviously myself included because I worked for him, um, but even before that in 2016, um, support him as well, but that he just can't win a general election. And because there is such polarizing conflict around him and that Governor DeSantis, um, at least right now in the polls, is showing that he actually is ahead in a head-to-head against Joe Biden where Donald Trump is, is lacking. So uh, and, and is down. So what does that tell you about uh, how Republicans should view this primary? Because we ultimately need to win a general election as well. Well, here's the way I look at it, right? I'm not going to get into the business saying whether former President Trump can or can't win the general. Uh, what I am going to say is, is I, I'm endorsing Governor DeSantis because I think he can do the best job as president. And I think he will do the best job in the general election. I think he can help, uh, frankly, build a large conservative coalition to win overwhelmingly with a positive vision uh, in the fall uh, in the general election in 2024. Uh, I think that's critical. We need a mandate. We, we, we need to win with significant votes. We need to win with overwhelming numbers in the House and the Senate so we can get busy taking on uh, the D.C. establishment so that we can actually drain the swamp that President Trump set out to do, started to do, took a lot of great steps toward doing. Um, and now it's time for us to, I think, finish the job with an eight-year stretch with someone who can kind of finish it and get it across the finish line with a with a large governing majority, which I think he can deliver in the fall of 24. Well, and speaking of majorities, you are part of a Republican majority in Congress, which is a good thing. Uh, but yet, of course, the mainstream media is always uh, saying things like Republicans don't know what they're doing. And, you know, you guys are in disarray. And that that is uh, actually the subject of a headline in town hall. Are Republicans really in disarray over the debt ceiling? And you had an op ed, uh, actually, which was in the Federalist that was talking about uh, for America to grow Washington spending spree has to shrink. So uh, what is what is the truth actually on how the um, how the vote is going or is is portending in terms of the debt ceiling? Well, my voice sounds a little uh, scraggly. It's because we were at the rules committee until three in the morning last night uh, working to get uh, legislation through the rules committee that would uh, get to the floor that would uh, offer us the ability to send a debt ceiling package uh, through the floor and over to the Senate. Now, I don't know if we've got the votes yet. That's up for the leadership. They get paid the, quote, big bucks to, to get that part done. But let me just tell you, the bill that we moved to the Rules Committee, in my opinion, like my op-ed outlines, uh, provides us a really strong case uh, to make uh, to put this back in the court of Democrats and shove it down the throats of both Senator Schumer and Joe Biden. By raising the debt ceiling a a trillion and a half dollars, which is not my first choice, by the way, nor is it any conservative's first choice. But for that, we would uh, reduce, we would cut spending $131 billion across the board back to 2022 levels, enabling us to keep defense moving forward to beat China at the current level while reducing non-defense, not to some radical, quote, mega extremist level, but to pre-COVID spending levels, something that the American people overwhelmingly support, returning the federal swamp, the the woke weaponized government back to pre-COVID levels. Then we will remove the student loan, $550 billion. We would end the COVID uh, spending, taking $50 billion 
back off the table. We would end the IRA subsidies, the Inflation Reduction Act subsidies, which are all the garbage that does, you know, uh, fund these fat cat wealthy people getting rich on the back of green uh, subsidies that will kill our economy and kill economic growth. We passed the RAINS Act, which will rein in regulatory uh, creep and give Congress more power. It's a strong pro-growth bill that massively cuts spending $5 trillion, almost five, $4.8 trillion over 10 years, and a trillion over one year. Would I like to be more aggressive to rein in all the debt? Yes, at $32 trillion in debt. But it is a very strong package. I think the strongest we've ever done in terms of cuts that we could send over to the Senate. But right now, we still got to get 218 Republicans. We've got a lot, but it's going to be a close vote, uh, and it's going to be up to leadership to get it across in the next couple of days. Well, this sounds so reasonable, and any Republican you would think would be for less government spending. So what are some of the objections that your colleagues who aren't yet on board with this articulating? Well, there was a little back and forth last night about uh, a couple of the provisions we, you know, in cutting those, uh, quote, green subsidies, right, the, in the Inflation Reduction Act, all of the, the solar and wind subsidies. There were some subsidies in there for ethanol. We had some back and forth last night because, you know, there's a strong ethanol block uh, in the conference. And we, we reached an agreement and we were able to cut the expanded subsidies, uh, but kind of leave in place some of the the subsidies that had already existed before the Inflation Reduction Act. And then, you know, some of my more conservative colleagues, uh, they don't know that it goes far enough. Um, look, you know what? I, I share that opinion. I'd go further if I were, you know, czar or if I had the ability just to do it myself. But we're in the business of figuring out how to build a coalition and get this done and win. And I will give some credit to the speaker and to everybody involved that we are working through what I believe is the most conservative spending cut package you can possibly get through that we send over to a Senate run by Democrats and to Joe Biden. And then we'd be able to sit back and tell the American people, you know what? Put pressure on them. Force them to have to answer that we said we would raise the debt ceiling, something we've never wanted to do, and that we're doing it for reasonable uh, uh, spending restraint that returns it to, like I said, pre-COVID spending level and removes a lot of these uh, programs that are going to harm our economy when we need it the most to have economic growth, when we're staring stagflation, high interest rates, uh, people losing jobs, inability to pay their bills. We're setting the stage for success. I hope my colleagues will join us on it. Um, and again, I I've always want us to go farther if we can, but we got to get this done, right? And this is a really good bill. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got a pretty good track record of fighting for things and I think this is a pretty conservative bill. Yeah, and it reminds me, Congressman Roy, of of how some conservatives approach even you know, the pro life issue to say, well, you know, unless we get a total ban, then we're not going to champion, for example, a heartbeat bill because it doesn't go far enough. And I'm thinking, well, but you're saving the vast majority of lives. Let's at least get there, and then we can move the ball forward from there. And so, you know, the Democrats often have this incrementalist approach, and then they end up getting to where they want to be. It just takes them a little bit longer. And I think you're right on that, that even if there are things that uh, you know you would like to see that go further, this type of approach makes sense. Um, and so in just the last few minutes I have with you as well, I wanted to ask you, because you're on the uh, House Judiciary Committee as well, um, what is moving forward there, and, and particularly with uh, Congressman Jim Jordan's um, 
as the head of the committee, the subpoena out to Mark Pomerantz in, in the wake of the whole Alvin Bragg fiasco up in Manhattan? Well, obviously, Congressman Jordan has been, uh, you know, doing a great job trying to uh, move forward and put pressure there. Um, you know, we, we, you know, there was not a great surprise that, that, uh, that uh, Congressman Jordan and, uh, you know, our team, we were able to win that ridiculous lawsuit, the suit by uh, Bragg, um, and, uh, and, then, and then work out an arrangement uh, to make sure that we proceed uh, now. And I don't know the timing. i got to be honest with you. I was buried in Rules Committee the last two days. I'm actually missing a Judiciary Committee meeting as we speak. Um, and I'm going to go hopefully catch up with Congressman Jordan this morning at a hearing on unaccompanied alien children. Because we're now going to deal with that issue. As you know, we passed, not to change subjects, but we passed a border security bill, um, you know, through the Judiciary Committee last week. That's a strong bill, probably the strongest border security bill we've ever passed. Homeland Security will move something this week. We hope to then get a package through a week after next uh, to coincide with the Title 42 expiration uh, by President Biden. And again, I didn't mean to change subjects on you. I'm sorry. But but that's something we were able to get through. And uh, we're working with Congressman Jordan. We're going to we've got uh, now hopefully uh, they're going to go through the, the depositions, the conversations with with him, um, uh, hopefully soon. But I don't have the, the most recent timing on that because I'm not there right now. OK, well, well, we appreciate that. And um, for everyone listening, you can always follow uh, the the House Judiciary Committee that does post a lot of the updates as well. But um, really appreciate Congressman Chip Roy, all of your hard work. And uh, from the AFR family, we thank you uh, for being a stalwart conservative and for championing all of these issues. And we know we at least have, you know, a few good people on Capitol Hill. So always appreciate you uh, dropping by. So thanks so much for your time this morning and uh, really appreciate it, sir. Jenna, thank you, and thanks for being a reasoned voice uh, you know, out there as a, a, a Trump supporter, but who wants to look across the entire horizon to try to do the right thing. And, and, uh, and I share that view and just appreciate your voice out there. God bless. God bless you as well. And thank you for that. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's going to be a very difficult primary. And uh, I think that the congressman really articulated this very well that, um, you know, we need to look at the whole landscape. And I try to be, um, you know, not to borrow a phrase, but fair and balanced here. And so, you know, like to hear from uh, from everyone what we're thinking about uh, the primary. But ultimately, the goal has to be to take back the White House in 2024, regardless of whether that is a Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or someone else as the nominee. And speaking of someone else, Vivek Ramaswamy will join us right after this. So stay tuned here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. We'll be right back. Here's Ellis Craft of Reach a Village Ministries. Children were singing as they laid down palm branches to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. Children were part of the crowds who were listening to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Children were among those healed of diseases and raised from the dead by Jesus. Jesus had a special, tender love for children. Children are often among the first to open their hearts to Jesus when the gospel arrives in a village. Give today to reach children like these, and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Go to reachavillage.org slash AFR or call 833-773-2244. 
833-7-REACH-7. That's 833-7-REACH-7. Again, that's 833-7-REACH-7. This is Pause to Pray, a chance to stop down each day from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today, we pray for Paul Tonko, Congressional Representative for the 20th District of New York. He has served in the United States Congress since 2009. 2 Peter 1.6 reminds us of the character we should seek when choosing our leaders. And in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask for guidance for Paul Tonko as he represents the people of New York. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit, nonpartisan ministry dedicated to encouraging prayer for our nation's leaders. To learn more, go to pausetopray.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starnes. Stand by for news and commentary next. Liberty University's K-12 Online Academy is the best of a homeschool, private school, and Bible-based education all rolled into one. With LUOA, you can take charge of your child's learning environment and create a structured yet flexible schedule that works for your family. Our qualified teachers are easily accessible for guidance and support along the way. And with new classes starting every Monday, it's never too late to make a switch to LUOA. To learn more, text LUOA to 88741. That's LUOA to 88741. Every student must pass a swimming test in order to graduate from Stuy's Event High School in New York City. It's been a longstanding tradition. A swimming class for boys and one for girls. But that tradition is about to end. School administrators say moving forward, there will only be a co-ed class, a move that is sure to appeal to the transgender community, but not so much the Muslim community. The New York Times reports Muslim students are very upset at the co-ed class. They say they are uncomfortable swimming around boys and it also violates their religious beliefs. Turns out gender-specific swimming classes also violate the school district's gender inclusion guidelines. The Council on American-Islamic Relations said the district's decision is disheartening and unacceptable. Well, this ought to be interesting. The Muslim community versus the alphabet activist. Who wins that fight? Be sure to read my book, Our Daily Biscuit, available at ToddStarns.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Well, we've been talking uh, over the last, well, it's been about 24 hours, 48 hours now about uh, Tucker Carlson being let go from Fox. And interestingly as well, CNN kind of slid under the radar a little bit with uh, also firing Don Lemon in the very same day. But now uh, some reports are attributing in a large uh, percentage of the contemplation from CNN that the interview that we played for you uh, right here last week, and I talked with our good friend Vivek Ramaswamy, who's of course a GOP presidential candidate, uh, his conversation with Don Lemon that uh, you will recall uh, where Don Lemon was, was trying very unsuccessfully to debate him and suggested that uh, you, Vivek Ramaswamy, or, or anyone really, can't have an opinion unless you share the same skin tone, which um, is, is the worst possible way for leftists to debate. But the surprising thing about that is that CNN 
Uh, I don't know why they wouldn't actually be okay with that, right? Uh, well, joining me now to respond to all of this and more is uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. So good morning, my friend. And um, I, I would consider this a huge badge of honor uh, to be considered one of the links in the chain of uh, getting uh, Don Lemon out of uh, CNN for you know some of this stuff that, that really just goes beyond opinion. It's pushing back in a completely false light and it's trying to shut down the public conversation that we should be having. Yeah, look, Jenna, I think um, without going into the gory details, I think this was the final straw that broke their camel's back. And I think it's a good thing for the country when you don't have a TV host like Don Lemon claiming to host open debate while shutting it down when he's losing in that debate by saying that I can't say something or a guest can't say something unless they're black. And I think that that exchange was, it was very uncomfortable to be on set. But I will tell you, that is why I like to go to the turf of the other side to debate them and to win. And I think that we don't do that enough. But the more we do that, the more successful we're going to be in taking our country back. And I'm proud that I tanked the final season, the final episode of Don Lemon's career. That chapter is now behind us because even CNN, it is an institution that the new CEO, Chris Licht, who I've also met with in recent months, says that he wants to at least host diverse views. Well, we revealed that Don Lemon's not a host that actually facilitates that, so he got fired. So I'm proud to have played a role in that, and I think that this is just the beginning or one stop along the way of how I'm going to take debate to the left. We're going to win, and that's how we revive and take back our country, through free speech, open debate, and logic, rather than racial silencing, which is what the woke left gives us. And, and this was a huge earthquake in the fourth estate. And I think you're seeing, Vivek, a lot of the the crumbling of this old institution that, that really had uh, a corner on the marketplace of ideas because of the gatekeeping. And you are pushing through that. And so what do you look forward to in terms of uh, this presidential election with actually talking about the ideas that you're talking about? Because historically, a lot of Republicans... Uh, and certainly not those that are running for president, would be willing to say the things that you're saying on the national stage. Look, I think that this is critical in our own party to practice what we preach, to actually debate the ideas in the open. The thing that disappoints me about the Democrats, it doesn't surprise me, Jenna, but it disappoints me nonetheless, is that they said that despite the fact that RFK is running, who I think is an interesting candidate, I don't agree with them on everything, but I think his principal position on COVID and the vaccines was admirable, and I will respect him for that, that they won't let him debate Joe Biden on the debate stage. They're not having debates in the Democratic Party. I have condemned them for that. We need to be the party of saying we embrace free speech and open debate, that we actually want to be the party that defines the what and the why rather than just protecting the incumbent who's in power. That's the way of the Democrats. We've got to be different. And, Jenna, that's the key milestone for us in this campaign, that first debate in August. I'll tell you, a lot of people are not going to relish being on that debate stage with me. But I think it's going to be good for our party to debate those ideas. And, and honestly, not to be totally uh, open about this, but I will be open about it. I really think everyone here can help put me in that position to do that well. You see me with Don Lemon, I'll go with Chuck Todd toe-to-toe on NBC or any other network. I will take the debate to the left and win. I think that if we do it in our party, we'll be better off for it, too. Literally, the people, way people do it, give $1, literally, just even today, $1, 
at Vivek2024.com, V-I-V-E-K 2024.com. The number of unique donors is one of the formulas they use for how they set up that debate stage. I'm an outsider, not a professional politician, never run for office. So we have to build that from scratch. And I think our party and our movement will be better, better off for it no matter who you support. But if people go to Vivek2024.com, they can actually help make that happen. And if you do your part, I will deliver on that debate stage and in, in my debates with the left as well. Don Lemon getting fired was just one good part of it. Well, and and speaking of condemning the the Democrats for not being willing to have debates, uh, what do you make of Donald Trump acting like he's an incumbent and saying that he is unwilling to participate in uh, Republican debates because his campaign wasn't consulted on this? Well, this is what I've long said is that Donald Trump today is not the same Donald Trump as in 2015. Right? I respected the outsider version of Trump, who in 2015 was actually the guy who made it happen on the debate stage. He really shone. And that's what gave the voters and the movement, the America First movement, the fuel that it did to go the distance. But you only get to be an outsider once. I'm the outsider in this race, and I'm doing the same thing this time around, taking that America First agenda even further. And Jenna, I've said this, I've predicted this since day one I got in this campaign. I don't think the other candidates including Trump, are going to enjoy being on that debate stage with me. But this isn't about Trump, or it shouldn't be. It should be about our country. America first does not belong to one man. America first does not belong to Donald Trump. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the people listening. It belongs to the people of this country. That's who it belongs to. And we need to keep that straight in our mind. And so if America first really belongs to the people, then this isn't about protecting anybody. This is about making sure that we put our best foot forward, that no matter who wins, we're actually putting the best foot forward on the agenda. One of the things I've pressed on is, look, we should end race-based affirmative action in America. That's something that the U.S. president can do. Trump or the other candidates have not touched that because that's a politically fraught topic. Abandon the climate change agenda. Republicans won't say it in so many words. That's why I'm saying it, the quiet part there out loud. Shutting down the administrative state, not just putting Betsy DeVos or other good people on top of those bureaucracies like the Department of Education, I said, I'm going to shut it down. Those are the ideas we need to actually debate, because then we can go further with the America First agenda than we ever have. Than we ever have. And I'll say it again. America First does not belong to one man. It belongs to all of us, the people of this country. And that is why that debate stage is so important. And again, I think that this is not just me doing it. It's all of us doing this together, each doing our part. And people, the beauty of our system is people have the power to actually do it. So honestly, people gave just even a dollar at Vivek2024.com. We're going to make huge progress towards getting there. Yeah, and I think that debates are incredibly important. And and listen, if we're the party and we're the conservatives that value and appreciate the First Amendment and the free marketplace of ideas and the public forum, then all of the candidates should welcome that clash, should welcome the opportunity to discuss all of these ideas. So, I mean, to me, yeah. it's it's a little bit mind-boggling that, you know, someone like Trump would not want to engage uh, that stage, especially because he, you know, he, he has previously been so famous for wanting to go toe-to-toe with people. Um, so, so I appreciate your outlook and perspective on that and, and saying, you know, you're so eager to get there and you look forward to that. And um, speaking of freedom of speech and the First Amendment and freedom of the press as well, you have a new book that just came out yesterday that's called Capitalist Punishment, 
how Wall Street is using your money to create a country you didn't vote for. And uh, this is a fascinating topic to me. And um, if anyone has read Woke Inc., which I have, it's an excellent book, then you're going to want to read this book as well. So uh, what is this particularly addressing? And uh, how is Wall Street using our money uh, to create a country and, a, and basically a bureaucracy that is unelected? Well, what this book does is it lifts the curtain on a farce. The farce is that your money is invested in the market just to make money. It's not. Actually, what the largest asset managers in the world are doing, like BlackRock and State Street, with your retirement accounts, is they're using them to advance racial equity audits and emissions caps and other political agendas that, A, you didn't vote for, And B, which don't even represent your financial best interests. And so the myth in this country, Jenna, is that you just vote every November. That's not true. You vote every day with your dollars, whether or not you know it. And it's one of those things that once you see it, you cannot unsee it. And I've studied this issue. I've built a company called Strive to take on BlackRock. I mean, I have this has been what I've dedicated the last several years of my life to before running for president. And I'd actually written this book before I knew I was running for president. So I wrote the book. We put it out. I'm actually donating my personal proceeds from this. I don't write these books to make money. I'm donating my personal proceeds to a nonprofit called Color Us United that's helping back litigation against American Express for wrongfully terminating a white employee as part of its racial equity agenda. So, look, I think that this is going to take all of us to make it happen. But one of the things is not all through government. Some of this is done through the private sector, too. And this is a book that gives ultimate path to freedom is knowledge. That was my goal with this book, is to deliver knowledge on what's actually happening with your money. And I titled the book accordingly, Capitalist Punishment, was the reason we chose that, because it is a, it is a grave kind of punishment, but not the kind that most people are accustomed to seeing. And so even though I wrote the book before I knew I was running, we still wanted to put it out, because I think it's an important educational book for people to know how their investment accounts are misused. Absolutely. And, um, you know, not to give away the ending, but for people who are very concerned about voting with their dollars, um, what is the way that we can still participate in this system without uh, helping this system continue to to be as bad as it is? Well, the problem is there is very little to no competition. And that is why, for example, I started Strive. I started it last year with the goal of offering a different perspective. So I'm proud to say that actually within three months of starting of launching our first fund last year, Jenna, Strive already aggregated over $500 million just at the three-month mark after August launching its first fund. But the more important part is I hope that there are other competitors that come up as well, because this is about the country. It's not about any one business or anything like that. I think I'm, I, I'm doing what I'm doing because and I did what I did even in the private sector because we can drive positive change that way, too, not just through politics. But the reason I stepped down as as chairman of that organization was to run for president. And so even though that's doing well, I decided that doing it through the market alone, yes, I can start these successful businesses, and it's great that they're doing well. But now we need to take it to the next level of a national revival, which is why I got into this race, too. Because as much as there is a top-down problem in this country, and that's what the book is about, that's what my mission and strive was about, We have to admit that that trick only works if we have a culture that's willing to buy up what they're selling, right? People our age, Jenna, you and I and younger, that's part of what we need to fix and fill a gap in, too, is to say that 
our generation is so hungry for purpose and meaning at a point where we lack faith and conviction in our country that we fall for these tricks, right? And so I think that that's actually the real root cause, which is why the presidential campaign is an important part of this cultural revival that we're missing in our country, too. So there are no silver bullets. There's a plethora of partial solutions. Some will be through the market. Some will be through education. But yes, some of it will have to come through who that next leader is in the White House. And as the first millennial ever to run for president as a Republican, I'm doing this for the next generation. And I know that's something you care about deeply, too, Jenna, as well. And, um, you know, I think the debate stage is going to be a crucial milestone for making that happen. And so appreciate everybody's support at the tune of $1. We don't want a lot of money. We just want a dollar at Vivek2024.com. And I think that that's going to be hopefully a critical step to our national revival. And I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, hopefully people enjoy the book as well. Take a break from politics and learn what's happening in the investment world. That's why I wrote it. I'm looking forward to the debates, too. And the book is Capitalist Punishment, uh, How Wall Street is Using Your Money to Create a Country You Didn't Vote For. The author is Vivek Ramaswamy, like cake, apparently, is how you were introduced by Greg Gutfeld last night. I just saw that on your Twitter feed. I thought that was great. Uh, Vivek, like cake. And uh, and speaking of BlackRock, um, in just the last minute I have with you, Vivek, um, there were there was a report that BlackRock has actually increased its position um, about double in terms of the shares of Fox News. And, you know, you're talking about uh, CNN's leadership and that change. And a lot of people are talking about Fox and the leadership change to the Murdochs uh, really taking over after Roger Ailes left. Um, Your quick reaction to uh, the firing of Tucker Carlson. Well, look, on the BlackRock point, the point is they own nearly every major company in America. And that's just the way these index funds work, is that BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard are among the largest shareholders of nearly every public American company. That's the real farce at the heart of competitive capitalism. As a side note, uh, as a separate topic, look, Tucker's one of the people I admire in the conservative movement, true independent voice, unafraid to depart from GOP party orthodoxies. That's what we need more of, actually, both in media and in thought leadership overall. That's what I'm trying to bring to the realm of politics. Tucker brought that as an, you know, in some ways as an unconventional outsider to the realm of political media and journalism, and I respect him for it. That's why he's a friend. That's great. That is great. And uh, really appreciate your work. And Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, go to Vivek2024.com. We will be right back to uh, talk about more journalism with some of our friends from Project Veritas uh, right after this here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. We'll be right back. Washington Watch. This is a crisis of our own making, and that hard-nosed determination to not admit it for political reasons is just really, truly disheartening. Yeah, I I don't want to beat a dead horse, but on this particular issue, the contrast between the policies of the two administrations could not be sharper. As I've mentioned here on the program many times, I was at the border a little over a year ago. It was like a ghost town. Weekday afternoons at 4 Central and Saturday evenings at 6 Central on American Family Radio. Take a time out in the corner. Refuse to allow anything 
whether they be relationships, whether they be friends and family members, whether they be a Supreme Court refusing to hear a case, whether they be any election results, no matter what it is, refuse to allow those things to eclipse the preeminence of Christ in your life. The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, weekday afternoons at 5 Central on AFR. The podcast is available anytime at AFR.net. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. Statistics show that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and to commit crime. They're nine times more likely to drop out of school and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. Yet the percentage of children born to fatherless homes has skyrocketed in America. As of 2015, 25% of white, 53% of Hispanic, and 73% of black babies are born into fatherless homes. While scripture teaches that the weight of raising children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord falls upon fathers, seems like we need a movement that says fatherhood matters. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. Preborn celebrates that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Roe has been responsible for the slaughter of over 63 million babies. Now the decision to abort a child will be left in the hands of the states, and sadly, abortions will continue in the most liberal states. Over the past 16 years, Preborn has positioned their clinics in the top abortion cities where 50% of abortions occur. Preborn's work of saving babies' lives continues at an even greater level as they save babies' lives and defend their centers from the radical hate groups who want to shut them down. Preborn's response is dependent on you, the pro-life community. Be a part of rescuing lives and changing hearts for Christ. $28 sponsors one ultrasound and $140 will help to rescue five babies' lives. Dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or go to preborn.com. All gifts are tax deductible. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And of course, we're still talking about uh, Tucker Carlson being let go from Fox and Don Lemon from CNN. And if you missed uh, Todd Starn's commentary and you want to hear that, um, he was supposed to be with us yesterday. Totally my fault uh, with some tech issues. And so I had him on my podcast. So you can go to the Jenna Ellis And uh, Todd joined me for a really great uh, conversation and some insights from his 14 years working uh, for Fox News as a contributor and some of the differences in leadership and so forth um, that in, in that transition from Roger Ailes to uh, the Murdoch family and, and some things uh, going on there. So you can find that conversation at the Jenna Ellis show.com and anywhere that you stream on that podcast. Um, but the other thing that we, we still we have to be paying attention to, um, not just in, in the wake of what host is on what network, um, but as conservatives and especially as Christians, we need to be standing up firmly against the transgender agenda for everyone, um, not just arbitrarily uh, drawing this bright line between adults and they can do whatever they want, but minors uh, cannot transition until they become adults. Because um, in, in the words of the great Michael Knowles from Daily Wire, if it's a lie, it's a lie for everyone. 
and that is true. And we are still going to have to deal with a society that uh, is promoting truth. And we should be championing that uh, for everyone, uh, not just saying, sure, you can live however you want. And this is one of the problems that I personally have with a lot of the uh, the so-called conservative influencers that are not taking necessarily a moral position they are simply uh, saying, I want to have the freedoms of capitalism and the freedoms for government to stay out of my life so that I can have my preferences celebrated and affirmed. And that is really no different than what the left is is propositioning. And we as conservatives and as Christians know that government is there to promote good and restrain evil for everyone. And if you are someone or, or your friends are, are someone who don't like that there would be a moral code of ethics in this country and a law that is shaped and defined by objective moral truth from the God of the Bible, then you should be asking yourself the question, well, why is that? Is that because I don't want to come under the authority of our divine lawgiver, of God himself? Is it because maybe then that law would be imposed upon me as well? And that's why we have to make sure that we are always talking about the biblical worldview in the entire context. And one of the best um, organizations that has been talking about specifically the transgender movement and this wokeness in education uh, is Project Veritas and our good friends there. And yesterday they broke the story. You can go um, on my Twitter feed on theirs as well and watch this video or it's on Facebook as well. Um, you, any of those platforms that is uh, part three of this series. And the headline here is transgender health professionals admit high autism rates among minor patients making life-altering gender transition decisions. They reveal the fact that these minors become, quote-unquote, lifelong patients. This is a tragedy. So joining me now to uh, talk more about this particular video is Mario Balaban, who is a good friend and uh, with Project Veritas. So uh, Mario, th this entire project uh, to expose the transgender so-called uh, healthcare professionals. They're not healthcare. Um, they, they are evil people who are doing this um, has been really, really well done by Project Veritas. So um, what has this video exposed in terms of um, the admission of high autism rates among minor patients? Hey, Jenna, thank you for having me on. So, as you said, this is a part three of our hashtag Too Young series of exposing really the quote-unquote healthcare of transitioning young kids. So, uh, the first video showed that people as young as eight years old, kids as young as eight years old, can be, trans, uh, can be put on puberty blockers. But at 14, some doctors in these videos believe that these kids know by themselves, without parental uh, guidance, that they are ready to take hormone therapy, which is irreversible, right? So this is kind of the premise of this investigation. But in this latest video that you're citing, part three, you're now seeing that these minors, a lot of them, according to these medical professionals, they've actually come in with some mental, you know, uh, disability. One of them being a um, autism is a, is a main one that they've identified as, you know, these young kids come in with the, with autism and, uh, there's been cases where they'll, where they'll come to the doctor and they'll say, actually, I want to I, I transition. And these doctors that we recorded, instead of them, you know, questioning, well, is this kid, 
capable of making this decision, they're like, oh, perfect. Let's uh, let's get you started right away. So it's um, you know it's very troubling that you know our our you'd expect medical professionals to take a step back here and say, okay, well, if a minor uh, who is you know has autism is coming up to me and saying they want to transition, should I maybe evaluate this or just go right ahead? And it appears that they're going right ahead and just moving along with puberty blockers, hormone therapy, and all of these different um, treatments that it, eventually these uh, minors might regret and want to detransition once they've uh, come to come of age. Yeah, and, and you know, Mario, this seems like it's the complete opposite way of how um, the medical community should be approaching uh, problem solving in in medical advice. I mean, not even just in in this realm, which you know I believe, and and I think we should we all who are rational believe that uh, th- that having minors take these these drugs and gender transition is never the right outcome. Um, we need to be addressing the other problems. But it seems like doctors, because they know that um, these minors will become lifelong patients and they're beholden to big pharma and other uh, special interests that aren't actually uh, helping their patient, it seems like we're treating this as a society like a consumer-driven product where you know, it's like you go to the mall and you say, oh, I want to pick out this outfit or I want to buy, you know, this particular lifestyle rather than and, and then the doctor just says, OK, rather than coming to the doctor and saying, here is my problem, evaluate me and then provide your best medical solution. No, you're absolutely right. That's that's the troubling part is that, as you said, not only are these kids, you know, many of them suffering uh, from autism, but they end up becoming, according to these doctors, lifelong patients. So one of them says, you know, hey, in the beginning, it's a lot of doctor visits, but, you know, after a while, you space it out. It's like every six to 12 months, which, yeah, is being a patient, but that isn't so bad, you know? So they're, they're basically admitting, like, yeah, you know, you'll just have to come to us every six to 12 months for the rest of your life, but that can't be so bad, right? So there's just a lot of misconceptions that, you know, these kids, uh, minors, are believe that, okay, well, I transition and I'll be whatever gender that I transition to very easily. But actually, no, you're going to be going through these uh, procedures and these and these medications for the rest of your life. And in the video that we uh, published, we also have two transitioning advocates, people who were transitioned at a young age and regretted, and they explained exactly how these medical professionals approach it. They come to their parents and say, hey, if you don't transition your child, you're either going to have a dead daughter or a, a, you know, a happy son. You have to choose between having a dead daughter or a new, a new son. So you should be happy that you're going to have a son now. That's really the way that they get talked to as parents and as minors. So they start believing the doctors and say, oh, wow, I need a transition or else my, my, you know, my mental health is in danger if I don't. Right? So it's, it's really a troubling situation. And when it comes to the, the profit angle, you know, a lot of these experts that have spoken to us have said that it's a very profitable industry. It's billions and billions of dollars that are going to these surgeries and these medications for transitioning minors or adults into a different gender. So there is definitely a financial incentive for, for this to go on. And the way that these doctors speak to these patients, almost like they're in some cases coercing them into believing something that they eventually end up regretting and wanting to detransition.
And I'm talking with uh, Mario Balaban, who is with uh, Project Veritas. And if you're hearing some of the noise in the background, he's graciously uh, joined us even from the airport right before <laughs> taking a flight. Yeah, so really appreciate that. Uh, Mara, you have you know, been there, done that on so many hits, so always uh, really appreciate that uh, as well. But, you know, th- there was a great um, piece a few years ago, and I think it was the Federalist that was talking about this billion-dollar industry for big pharma that is creating and manufacturing patients. And to have this type of lifelong uh, patients that start when they're minors and they're coming and, and then as soon as they start this this gender transition uh, therapy and then surgery, I mean, this is when, when it's totally unnecessary and it's wholly elective, but as you said, coerced by these healthcare professionals, then it's not only aiding big pharma, but it's also going into this um, absolutely evil ideology from the left. And the thing that I find really fascinating about the videos that Project Veritas is releasing is that this, if the left really believed that this was the best for culture and this was the best thing for all of these minors, they would be out there open about what they're doing. But you have to go and have, you know, undercover journalists and release these videos to show the truth of what's going on because they're not being transparent in their intentions and what they're actually doing and how they're coercing parents. So, you know, what does it tell you and and Project Veritas and what reaction have you gotten to these videos? I mean, this is part three now, uh, that there isn't transparency in terms of what uh, Big Pharma is actually doing. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So what's fascinating here is that I actually went to interview some of these doctors on the street right outside their clinic in New York City. And one employee, a very fascinating situation that worked, worked, I believe, as a nurse at this facility where Dr. Stever, one of the doctors in our video, was works. She basically said that, you know, she's ashamed of what's going on, and she thinks that they're all part of the agenda. And, and I was like, do you realize that you work in the same building as this person, right? You might actually work directly with <laughs> this doctor. And they're like, yeah, I know. And I'm embarrassed. So it was really, really quite powerful that I even saw people, nurses in New York City saying this. But, you know, in terms of reaction, I, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted out the video saying that because of what Project Veritas uncovered, there should be, uh, you know, they should continue to push uh, her new bill that I believe is, I forget the name of the bill, but she has a bill that she's introduced about protecting child from mutilation and gender transitions that, you know, we just discussed here. So uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is bringing this to the U.S. Congress, and she's pushing several steps here to protect the innocence of children. And, you know, that's really the, the power of undercover journalism, right? As you said, there's a lot of things that people are willing to say publicly, right? But there's things that they only say privately, and that's what Undercover Journalism Project Veritas does. We'll go and get people saying things that they don't want the public to know about. And if you tell them, hey, I'm a journalist, what is your comment on this? They'll just tell you the PR statement, the PR line of what they're doing. But if you go undercover and they don't know who they're talking to necessarily, it's more likely they'll be able to tell you some things that they don't want others to know, right? So that's the work that we do, and that's what happened here. And uh, it's very powerful, as you said. It's gotten millions and millions of views across several platforms. 
Mm. Well, and the lesson for all of us and for everyone listening is that you should be the same person in public as you are in private, so that you are uh, not just talking the the talking points and, and the PR uh, openly about anything. I mean, I think um, a lot of us would do that even in our daily lives, you know, whether you're a, um, a professional and, and you speak to, to journalists or um, or whether you just, you know, have that type of line that you, you, know, you say what you think in private, but uh, you go out and live something else. I mean, we should as Christians all want to stand up for the truth, um, not only in public, but also in private. So um, Mario as well, thanks so much for your time. And how can people uh, support Project Veritas and also find uh, parts one through three of uh, these video series? And, and how many more do you anticipate as well? Is this, is this the last one or uh, do you expect some more to drop? So we're still investigating. I can't say what we have coming up next, but we have some big, big stories coming up next. You can find all of our information in our videos at projectveritas.com. And to support us, uh, you can go to projectveritas.com slash donate uh, as we're a nonprofit organization. And again, um, Jenna, thank you so much for having me on and continue to support Project Veritas. We really, really appreciate you. Well, thanks so much, Mario. Have a safe flight. Uh, really appreciate all of the work that you all do uh, at Project Veritas. And I am just being told uh, by Devin, our producer, who is excellent. Devin and Adam uh, make up a really great team here that Marjorie Taylor Greene's bill is called the Protect Children's Innocence Act. So you can also go to her website and uh, social media as well to find that bill and you know encourage your members of Congress to focus on these issues because people like Marjorie Taylor Green have a huge platform and I'm grateful to her for championing these issues and you need to encourage the fellow members of Congress in the Republican majority to take this seriously to be looking at these issues and to to take this up and have this a priority in Congress because there are so many issues going on I mean even as I'm prepping every day for this show it's not just oh, wow, there's, you know, what do I fill an hour with? It's what things can I, can I prioritize because there's always so much to talk about. Well, these things are priorities and they should be for Congress, but they should be on the state level as well. And a lot of states are doing a really great job at uh, things like this and prioritizing bans uh, to protect children's innocence in so many areas, including uh, the transgender agenda, um, gender mutilation surgeries, things like that. So be telling your members of Congress, your members of the state legislature in the state that you live in to prioritize these things and kind of cut through the noise there. So we will be talking about all of the important issues here each and every day on Jenna Ellis in the morning. You can email us Jenna at AFR.net. Make it a great day. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.